But good morning, church. And turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. So we are, uh, again, this, this study, which set off to cover Genesis 1 through 3 in great depth and detail, the intention of it was to kind of do our best to separate our minds from maybe a, a, a Sunday school way of thinking about Genesis, which is very much these are stories, interconnect, stories that may or may not be connected with one another, and really a, a, a treatment of Earth's kind of primordial past. And although that is true, we understand this in a historical way, we understand these things as really happening. The thing that I hope is clear and the thing that we have set off to do is to demonstrate how everything that transpired in Genesis 1 through 3, and then as last week we talked about the flood, and this morning as we talk about God's covenant with Abraham, that these things are definitional, paradigm-defining aspects of God's word that directly impact us, the way that we see the world, and the way that God interacts with his people. So this morning we're going to be looking at a text in, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 12. So, but we'll begin reading in Genesis chapter 11. Easy to flip back if you have a paper Bible. Maybe takes a couple of taps if you're using your phone. But Genesis 11 will begin in verse 27. So hear the word of the Lord. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. And Haran died in the presence of Terah, his father, in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. And Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to go to the land of Canaan. And they came as far as Haran and settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we go back, not even hundreds of years, but thousands of years, to your calling and your promise and your covenant with Abram, the man that would become Abraham, the one that countless, countless people across this world look back to at the touchstone between God and man, that we will allow your word to inform us of what these promises mean. And Lord, let your spirit illuminate our minds and hearts so that we will understand what the fulfillment of these promises are. We thank you for this opportunity. Bless us this morning. Amen. 
So again, we, we went through verse by verse in 1 through 3, Genesis 1 through 3, and then we've taken a bit of a, of a different approach as we've moved through the text. So we look through 1 through 3, and then we jumped ahead and looked through 6 through 9 and talking about the flood last week, and here we are in chapter 12. Well, what happened, simply for the sake of, of clarity, between the end of chapter 9, Noah disembarking from the ark and setting up the altar and having the covenant that God made with him, what happened between that point and our point this morning? Well, you can read it for yourself, and I encourage you to do so, but Genesis 9, 10, and 11, they talk about the spread of mankind. They talk about how man was initially obedient in being fruitful and multiplying and spreading across the face of the earth. But as is the tendency of humanity, if we fall back into the same bad ruts that sin has dug in our lives. So just like if you are riding a bike or just like if you're driving a car and in a matter of weeks we might be dealing with snow. I mean, realistically, it could happen. And what happens, we don't drive on those, the, the, the white. What we, we either, because of the slippery nature of the path that we're traveling or because our hearts and our eyes naturally gravitate towards those ruts, that is where we go. The same thing is true of sin. So one of the major sin issues that, uh, that people found themselves in after the fall was not spreading across the world, but going to one place and building cities. And probably the most infamous city that we have in the Old Testament, especially in this time period, was the city of Babel and the tower at its center. And whereas God had ordained a place where man should worship him and a way that man should worship him, and, and on sacred mountains that man should go to. Here we have man deciding we're going to build our own mountain in a place that's convenient for us. And consequently, they build an, an altar to themselves and to their hubris in order that they can worship God in their image, in their manner. And God strikes them, confuses them, and spreads them across the land. And so we get the history of that in Genesis 10 and 11 taking us to being introduced to Terah and his son, Abram. And I may slip into calling Abram, Abraham. You'll just have to bear with me and know that that is anachronistic and it's just the nature of this kind of work. So we get to knowing Abram in this text in Genesis chapter 11. And really before we get to know him and have the biographical sketch of kind of the things that Abram does we get to understand Abram in the most important way that we can know him, and that is Abram before God. Abram in relationship to God. And this is in a covenant. Now, covenant is something that we need to know because it is what is definitional in understanding Scripture. In fact, it's so important that we decided it is part of our church name. We have organized as a particular body of Christ's people as Christ Covenant Church, because the nature of covenant is so essential in understanding and comprehending how God relates to his people. God is the great king, and he tells us who he is, who we are, what he's done for us, what we ought to do in response to that, and consequently, what he will do if we are obedient and what he will do if we are disobedient. 
This is what a covenant is. In the Old Testament, we see these covenants as being sealed in blood. We see that back in the, in the fall as Adam and Eve leave the garden and God covenants with them in Genesis chapter 3. We saw that last week when we were going through the story of Noah and the flood. And as Noah disembarks, how God cuts a new covenant with Noah, where these animals that Noah inevitably cared for, uh, for all of these days and nights in the flood, in the ark, on the water, as soon as they get off of the boat, he slits their throat and creates a, a flaming altar for God because God creates that covenant. These covenant, this nature of, of this agreement between God and man, God condescending, God coming down to man, giving him more information, giving us more information than we deserve, is always sealed in blood and is always completely and ultimately dependent upon the unchanging nature of who God is. And so this is this agreement, this covenant that God enters into with Abram that we see in Genesis chapter 12. So what we're going to do this morning, and we're going to do so relatively quickly, is we're going to go through six elements of this covenant, six things that we see explicitly that God lays out and promises in this covenant, and then we're going to kind of go backwards and look at how we see these things ultimately fulfilled in a better, greater way in Jesus Christ. So beginning again in Genesis 12, verse 1, And Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house. Here we see God's calling and Abram's obedience. God's calling and Abram's obedience. The very first thing that God does is God reaches out to Abram. We don't have any indication that, that Terah, that Haran, that Nahor, or that Abram was necessarily worshiping God prior to this moment. In fact, what we often see in scriptural accounts is that when God calls people out, he doesn't do so because everything was fine where they were, and he just wants to give them a different setting and scene. He calls them out because where they were is not conducive to a right relationship with him. And so Ur, and one of the fascinating things, and again, we talk about the ruts that man falls into, is that archaeological evidence, but buttressed by the witness and the testimony of Scripture, is that Ur and the Chaldees are places that within a few generations after the Ark, after Babel, are completely engrossed in pagan idolatry, specifically in moon worship. So not even going for the greater light, not worshiping the sun, but worshiping the moon. And this is where Abram is called out of. So Abram is called out of this. And notice, it's not simply saying, go away from that which is scary, go away from that which is dangerous. There's actually a high calling that God gives to Abram. Go forth from your kin and from your father's house. This was a high expectation. All of the security all of the, the, whether it be familial protection, and in this day and age, that meant actually protection from other families, other parties, other nations that could have been a threat. All of the material protection that came with the wealth, the generational wealth that would have been with family, this is what Abram is being called away from. This is what Abram is being asked 
to leave, being commanded to leave. And to jump ahead in verse 4, we said, so Abram went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him. So Abram was obedient. God called and Abram obeyed. God said, this is what I want you to do. And you might say, well, I mean, if I had a burning bush experience or I had a flaming, you know, uh, the, the host, uh, uh, the general of the host of God's armies stand before me and told me to go somewhere, I would, I would do it. Of course I would. Well, we have the resurrected Christ and his inspired word before us telling us what we ought to do when we often frequently fail in that. We have his Holy Spirit in us and we are in the business, unfortunately, causing us to confess our sins of suppressing and quelching the Spirit. And so consequently, we see what Abram does and this, as it talks about in Hebrews, is in itself a, a demonstration of the faith of Abram. The faith of Abram that later will be reckoned to him as righteousness. This is the kind of thing that demonstrates Abram is a man after God's heart. God calls and Abram obeys. What does he obey? Well, continuing on, we'll, we'll flesh out this covenant that's made between God and man. It says, as we continue in verse 1, to the land which I will show you. So this is a promised land. It is the promised land. So God says, you go, you leave your people, you leave your father, you leave security, you leave what you know, you leave what is comfortable, you leave that behind, go to the land which I will show you. I'm not asking you to go to a place that looks like it's going to be good farming territory. I'm not asking you to go to a place that looks like it is going to be a convenient intersection where commerce is going to be bustling in a matter of months or years. I'm telling you to go to a land which I will show you. It is a promised land. And of course, this is the land of Canaan. This is the land that becomes the focal point, the object of desire, the object of promise for really the entirety of the rest of Genesis and Exodus. And as the, the, we get into out, or out of the Pentateuch and into the book of Joshua, this land, the land that Abram is being promised at this very kind of uh, um, uh, infancy stage is the promised land. This is why we call it the promised land. I mean, these are these simple things that we sometimes just take for granted because we speak Christianese and we speak, speak church talk so frequently that we sometimes don't define why is it the promised land. The promise is not on the, the big grapes and the milk and the honey and what is fertile soil and what is an area where everyone wants it both then and today because of what it means from a socioeconomic and geopolitical standpoint, it's promised to them because it was given to them by God. If it was a forsaken, shrub-laden bit of desert, yet God had promised them it would be just as valuable as if it was oil-rich and resource-rich and commerce-rich as we know that it is. But God promised Israel this territory set apart for a purpose. This is interesting, and I think this is important to remember. Although we work in, in, at the deepest level in a spiritual matter, God is concerned about the hearts, the souls of men, of women, of families, of tribes, of nations. 
he does so on a physical sphere. Spear. Physical sphere. He does so in the real, tangible world. Places matter. Places have value. The, the, the promised land had a purpose. The earth, as we talked about back in Genesis, had a purpose. This is God's sacred garden, God's sacred place that he created for himself for us to keep. And so it matters. The territory of Israel was set apart for a purpose. And it was promised to Abram in a time when he was leaving everything that he had, everything he knew, with a great uncertainty as to what the future would hold. So God called and Abraham obeyed. He had a promised land. And thirdly, we'll see in verse 2, he had a promised people. A promised people. We read in verse 2, And I will make you a great nation. And I will make you a great nation. Now this, this this is one aspect of the covenant that if we're being careful readers that we ought to pick up on some clues that we had already heard back in Genesis chapter 11. It says, I will make you a great nation. But notice, what does it say in chapter 11? It says in verse 30, And Sarai, the wife of Abram, was barren. She had no child. This is where the promise starts to get a little bit big. This is where the stakes get large. Because Not only is Abram going from his inheritance where he had land to a place where he doesn't know where he's going, but even where he was and he had security, he had land and he had everything he needed, he had no child. His wife was barren. This is something that was emphasized in chapter 11. It's going to be emphasized even more as you move through the narrative 12, 13, all the way up to the the revelation of the birth of Isaac. But there is a promised people that God gives to Abraham. I will make you a great nation. There's a promised people. To a man who has no people to his name, he has no son, he has no son and daughter-in-law, he has no son, daughter-in-law, and grandchildren, is being promised a people, a great nation. He is leaving a nation that is great from material, from from territory, from, from all of the standings of the day, and God is saying, you are going to be the one from which I am going to make a great nation. And of course, we know that because of the birth of Isaac, and then Jacob, and then 12 sons, and then everything that comes after that, this promised people, Israel, the people, was set apart for a purpose. It was a great nation. In fact, the, 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 the low point that we see of, of the uh, captivity in Egypt, that is in fact the breeding ground, the, the, the place in which God creates this great nation. So as Israel leaves Egypt on their way to the promised land, they are great not only in numbers, they are also great in material possessions. They plundered the Egyptians. Their slave masters are now giving them the gold off of their necks and the fabrics off of their beds and the food out of their fields so they will go out of there. We see the fulfillment of this promise happen in the most unlikely of circumstances. 
I mean, the entirety of the, the, the rest of the, the book of Genesis shows how this plays out, how this promise made to a single man who is unable to have a child comes to fruition in a promised people in the nation of Israel, provided for in famine, provided for even in captivity, and then led out of captivity towards the promised land. Well, continuing on as we read verse, uh, continue in verse 12, God says to Abram, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. We see blessings for Israel. There's blessings for Israel. And of course, this is that aspect of the covenant that is so important to grasp. God doesn't just say, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you people, and then you figure, out, figure it out yourself. Sometimes we kind of have that mentality, particularly in our Western setting, particularly because the vast majority of us and the people that you're going to come in contact with this week are very self-sufficient, or at least have the illusion of self-sufficiency. We get our paycheck, we go to the store, we buy food, we use our paycheck to pay for our bills, we know how to do basic house repairs, we do all of the things that we need to do, we get here driving our car, we get online, we do everything and find out all the information that we need. And so we think, you know what? I'm good waiting for God's blessing in a time of trial and tribulation, but right now maybe I can just bank that because I've got it all taken care of. Under God's covenant, he makes it so clear that blessings, blessings of sufficiency, of being able to have the cognitive ability, being able to have the rational abilities to do the basic things that we do, are made clear because of a knowledge of God and an understanding that all of these things fall under his sovereignty, that these are some of the wonderful outpourings of being made in his image. And that we don't do these things and say how great I am, but we do these things. We provide for our families. We provide for our neighbors. We provide for the things, the material blessings that God gives us. And as a result, we turn around and we don't say how great I am. We say how great thou art. God blesses us. And he promised that he would be, have blessings for Israel. And they're not just these kind of blessings. They're not kind of these, only these spiritual things that only exist kind of in, a, in, a, in a, a spiritual sphere where everything else is falling apart, but we're able to say, yes, but at least we know God. At least we can pray. That's true, and that's a baseline, but notice the nature of the promise that he makes in verse 2. I will bless you and make your name great. Make your name great. It was a great terror to Pharaoh, but it was a great name. It was a, a great terror to the Canaanites as Joshua led his people in, in, into conquest into, the, into Canaan, but it was a great name. It was a great name as the Davidic empire flourished and as Solomon led Israel under God to its great splendor, a great name and a blessing. And of course, the blessing was not necessarily the geopolitical or the economic blessings, but the blessing as is outlined in, in Exodus 19, even before God speaks the Ten Commandments to Israel, he says that you will be a kingdom of priests. That Israel, this, 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 this people that came from a man who was childless, would now bless 
the nations. Israel, the territory, Israel, the people, was never meant to build high walls to keep their blessings in and to keep their message hidden under a bushel. They were meant to be a great light to the nations. And this was a promise that God gave to Abram all the way back when he called him out of Ur. Continuing on in verse 3, And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curses you I will curse. This is what it looks like to be living under the king. Living under the king. Living under the king offers great protection. Living under the king offers these stipulations, not only for you, but those who interact with you. And for Israel, this was a a promise to God that he was not only a localized God. You have to remember that back in this time, the idea of territorial deities, of the Babylonians had their God, of Assyrians having their God, the Egyptians had their pantheon of gods. This was understood, this was in the background of everyone's mind. And in fact, Scripture makes it clear that they weren't, paying, they weren't praying simply to, to wooden idols or stone idols or high places or sacred groves, but there was actual demonic forces that they were tapping into when they were going to these things. This is something that is clear not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. This is what the Apostle Paul makes very clear when he talks about what praying to an idol actually is. But God, in saying this, is is, is actually making it very clear. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, is that he will supersede, he will go over and above, he has power that is beyond the power of all of these false gods and all of these entities that, that were influencing and were worshipped by the other nations. And what this means is that others will see the power of the covenant of the great king. And we see this actually play out. We see this play out particularly as you, as you work through uh, the, the time in the wilderness that the Israelites are traveling between Egypt and the Promised Land. And as they enter the Promised Land, there is actually nations, there are people groups that because of their kindness of feeding, of giving shelter to Israel, that they are given a special level of protection. And at the same time, it doesn't take a long time to find those nations that curse Israel and we see that they get their comeuppance in very short order. If you've been reading along with us in the Mishane Bible plan, I mean, what a blessing it has been to work through Scripture systematically and in such an interesting way of having a mixture of Old Testament and New Testament. But we just finished up, if you're you're on pace, the, the book of Jeremiah and the prophet and what he is talking about and the cursing that is laid in these final chapters of Jeremiah on Babylon, on Egypt, on Assyria, on all of these nations that God actually uses as an instrument of his judgment on unfaithful Israel, but because they, in their hearts, their intention was was animosity towards God's people, God will pay them back for that. He will curse those that curse his people. Others, and because of this, others will see the power of the covenant of the great king. God, Yahweh, is not an isolated God that is only for his people Israel that has no flow or no impact into the surrounding peoples. God's covenant with Abram concludes at the end of chapter 3, where he says, And in you 
all the families of the earth will be blessed. We see a blessing for the nations. A blessing for the nations. And here we acknowledge that the covenant that God makes with Abram extends beyond the bounds of a territory, extends beyond the bounds of an ethnic group, and it extends beyond the bounds of a time period. God's promise is that from Abram, remember going back to Genesis chapter 3, one of the, the, the initial covenant in this great covenant of grace that continues to grow throughout history, in Genesis chapter 3, God promises that there is going to be a faithful seed that comes from the woman. And this seed will eventually become the one who crushes the head of the serpent. And this, this, this serpent is the one who is deceiving the nations. The devil is the one who is holding the nations captive. And so here we see the continuing unfurling and unveiling of God's great plans through the seed of the woman to bring vindication upon his people. The covenant extends beyond the bounds of a territory, an ethnic group, or a time. There are blessings for the nations. Well, church, that's it. There's much more we could say about the particulars of what we see in this ancient reading, in this ancient time of Abram and his interaction with God, how God actually uh, restates the, na- the, the essential components of this, uh, this covenant in the coming chapters as Abram is kind of becoming the man and becoming the, the one that God intends him to be. But what we want to look at this morning is how all of these things are still pertinent for us today, how they are still definitional for us today, because God's promises did not fail. And God's promises were not limited. God is not a small God. Because we didn't sing it this morning, we still have a few songs on our our docket for our worship, but... There's a song that you inevitably sang when you were younger, if you grew up in church, that would be very appropriate at this time. It's Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and we already got some hand motions going on. And now here's the key part. This is the doctrinal truth, the clarity that sometimes is communicated in children's music that is oftentimes absent, and I'm guilty of this, in the pulpit. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And that's when children get whacked by each other as they do arm motions and they spin around. This is a time to advertise for children's ministry. Children's Sunday school, starting in two weeks, your children might sing that and hit each other. But the great truth of that song, Father Abraham have many sons, I am one of them. Well, I'm not going to raise hands and say, how many of you have taken a 23andMe or some sort of Ancestry.com thing and who have Jewish blood, Israelite blood in you? But that's never the intention of that song. That's not what that song means. That's not what is teased out in the New Testament because that is a song that is not an Old Testament song. That is a New Testament song. Because the fulfillment of this covenant and all of the covenant promises given in Genesis chapter 12 is not a single piece of land in the desert, is not a single ethnic group, is not the blessings and curses that correspond with the Old Testament, but Christ is the fulfillment of this covenant. Christ is the fulfillment of this covenant. 
and kind of working back through them. So if you have the, 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 the notes in front of you, we're going to go now from the bottom to the top. We see that Christ is the blessing for the nations. Christ is the one who's the blessing for the nations. What was the benefit that Israel would have brought to the surrounding nations? Those ancient uh, uh, people of what we would call the Levant, the, the, the areas around Canaan, what would the blessing be? Would it be really tasty food that was a fusion between kind of Ur-Chaldean Ur food and Egyptian food that had kind of come together as the Israelites were in captivity? Was it uh, interesting cultural artifacts that were brought back? The blessing for the nations was the good news of the covenant God. And the good news of the covenant God for Israel was the anticipation of a Messiah, an anticipation of the one, the seed of the woman who would one day crush the serpent, the one that held all of those nations in bondage. In Galatians chapter 3, this is where the song comes from, Paul writes, those who are of faith, those are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaimed the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. And later it says, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. How can we say that all the nations will be blessed in you, a promise given to Abraham back when he was just fresh out of a pagan worshiping Chaldea, is for us today. Holy Spirit-inspired scripture underlines, makes clear, is unequivocal about the fact that all the nations being blessed in you, talking to Abraham, is fulfilled by those who are in faith. You and me. Whatever our ethnicity may be, our skin tone, our DNA, wherever our family is from, whatever, wherever we come from, we are the beneficiaries of a promise made first to Adam and Eve as they left the garden that all of their children would one day be, be redeemed, those who are the seed of the, the woman. But here we see it clarified that in Abram, one of Abraham's descendants, all of the nations would be blessed. Christ is the blessing for the nations. Christ is the one who fulfills this. But moving up further, we see that we are living under the king. And what was the nature of understanding what life under the king was like in the covenant? I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. Christ's judgment. Christ's judgment. We don't often talk about Christ's judgment. Because remember, we often sometimes are very, very myopic and very narrow in our focus. And when we think about the ministry of Christ, we, we think primarily of those three years on earth where he did not come to bear a sword. He came to proclaim freedom for the captives. He came to show mercy on those who needed mercy. He claimed to, to lift up the marginalized and knock down those who were lording their power over them. But the entirety of Christ's ministry is completely in line with what we see the great king, Yahweh, promising Abram the idea of blessing those who bless and cursing those who curse his people will look like. Christ's judgment, the judgment that is coming, will render a perfect verdict. Christ will bless those who bless his people, and Christ will curse those who curse his people. 
We don't often talk about that, and partially because we're pretty scared of that last book that we find in our canon. But hear these words of Revelation chapter 19. John writes in the inspiration of the Spirit, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him which no one knows except himself, and being clothed with a garment dipped in blood. His name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads on the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God, the Almighty. And hear this, who is this one on the white horse, church? If you don't know it already, and he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ is not an impotent deity that stands by passively in flowing uh, linen and of, of perfectly feathered hair like we often see depicted in all of the, the, the late 80s and early 90s Sunday school materials who just lets bad things happen to his people hoping that someday something will work out. Jesus Christ the very one who was on the cross, the very one who is resurrected and ascended and is sitting at the right hand of the Father where he is currently all things being put in submission to his feet will one day return and bless those who bless his people and curse those who curse his people. This is a promise. This is, again, an essential aspect of the covenant relationship between God and his people. He will not allow those who mistreat, who persecute, who kill his people to go unpunished. We've said this before. Everyone will receive, there, there will always be justice given to all. It will either be poured out on them on the great day of judgment, or for you and for me, it was already poured out on Christ on the cross. There is perfect judgment given to anyone. The only question is, do we receive it in fullness, or did Christ receive it in fullness? Continuing again backwards, we see that there was going to be um, uh, blessings for Israel. Blessings for Israel. What was this blessing? I will bless you. I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. Again, what is the nature of that blessing? We're months away from Christmas, even though we might only be weeks away from snow. But the great pronouncement on the plain to the shepherds illustrates what this great blessing was. What was the hope of Israel? What was, what was the hope the whole time? Was it a temple? Was it a sacrificial system? Was it a land? Was it being left alone by their enemies? Again, you see so quickly that inversion of the intention of a people of God. The intention was not to be left alone. It was to not ever leave those surrounding them alone as they carried the good news of a covenant God and of his Messiah to all of the nations. But because of their sin, it was inverted. And isn't that an interesting thing to think about to be, make it personal? Oftentimes, we become less effective in our spreading of the gospel, in our propagation of the good news, in our being a positive influence and blessing each other and blessing our community and blessing the nations 
because we far too often have to deal with our own mess to the detriment of dealing with and blessing others. Doesn't mean that we don't have opportunity to do that. It just illustrates that sin shackles us from our opportunity. But anyway, getting back to Christ as the only hope of Israel, the true blessing of Israel, the pronouncement to the shepherds on the plain in Luke chapter 2 is that the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terribly frightened, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord who is the Messiah, the Lord. This was the blessing for Israel. This is what they had been waiting for, but they had lost sight of, and it had kind of been crammed into little zealous corners of their religion and of their nation. Christ is the only hope of Israel. He fulfills the blessing for Israel. He fulfills the blessings that had been anticipated. He fulfills all of those things. But of course, as we've said over and over again, Abram was given a promised people, but Christ's people transcends ethnic Israel. We've already touched on this. Again, Father Abraham, many sons, I'm one of them, so are you. Do you believe that? Yes or no? And if the answer is yes, then what we see is that Christ's people transcends ethnic Israel. In Romans chapter 9, a wonderful text that deals with this in fullness Paul writes, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. So just because Abraham, the, the, the promise, the covenant given to Abram in chapter 12 was initially localized and initially given to an ethnic people for a particular plot of land in a particular place, and because that hasn't gone so well, it didn't go well in the Old Testament, 70 AD was a pretty important date for understanding how well things were going for ethnic Israel and for their religious system. When it, within the generation of Christ and his apostles, you saw the fall of Jerusalem, you saw that the entire uh, system of, of, the, of the Jewish cultic activity and of their being in the land was a, completely wiped away. So has the word of God failed, Paul asks in Romans chapter 9. This is what he says, For they are not all Israel who descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. But through Isaac your seed will be named. That is, and hear this church, this is understanding the continuity that we see between these covenants of the Old Testament and us today. The children of the flesh are not the children of God but the children of the promise are considered as seed. This exact same language that we saw back in Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman are those remnant, those faithful, those who call, God calls unto himself. It has nothing to do with ethnicity, although we all are of the same race, but it has nothing to do with being able to track your lineage in some way, which would be impossible this day. But back to Abram but is the children of the promise are considered the seed. We are of the children of the woman. We are of Christ. We are of Abram, not through a DNA test, not through anything that has to do with our ethnicity, but because we are under the promise graciously poured out by God to those he calls to himself simply by his grace. 
Christ's people transcends ethnic Israel. But I think it's important to acknowledge that what does that mean? That means it also includes many who are of ethnic Israel. This is not what is sometimes called replacement theology, the idea that Israel has been completely given up on and that it's been given over to the nations. No, Paul goes on to talk about in this very same chapter that God is willing to re-graft on those branches that he trimmed off. And he uses that, this, this imagery of a tree of, 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 of pruning out unfaithful Israel, but he is perfectly willing to graft back on those who are faithful. The people of God is what is in picture here. It is not an ethnicity. It is not a, 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 a nation in particular. It is those who are faithful. Every tribe, tongue, and nation certainly includes those of Israel who are faithful to God, his promises, and are in the blood of their Messiah. But that means God's people transcends and subsumes and includes ethnic Israel. But, and thank God, it includes more than just ethnic Israel. But I think it's easier to understand here that Christ's kingdom exceeds Israel's borders. So there's a promised land, but Christ's kingdom exceeds these borders. I've never been to Israel. I would love to go someday, but I think it's important to note that you're not closer to God once you cross into Israeli airspace. You're not closer to God when you find your way to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You're not closer to God when you go to the, the one place where they say the garden tomb was, or the one place they say where Golgotha was, or the other place where they said it was. You're not closer to God if you get baptized in the Jordan River, and please don't get rebaptized in the Jordan River. If you've not been baptized, and you find yourself in a situation where you need to be baptized, and you have to be near the Jordan River, then by all means do it. But don't get rebaptized in the Jordan River. You only need to do that one time, because you only saved one time. The Western Wall does not give you, get you closer to God. It's a wonderful, amazing, historic, archaeological, and religious place. But it is no more sacred than Chester, New Hampshire. And the reason for that is that Christ's kingdom was never meant to be a very small plot of land in the Middle East. Again, God's plan for his people was to spread. Their message to spread. And so consequently, anywhere that the good news of an anticipated, anticipated Messiah, or on this end of the cross, a realized Messiah, anywhere that that goes is where Christ's kingdom is. This is made clear in multiple places in the book of Hebrews. It says in, in, uh, earlier in the book, it says that when Joshua brought them into the promised land, they never found it. They were waiting for something better. And it says in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Abram sojourned in the land of promise as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the one to come. The nature of the land, the promised land, is one that spreads it's the nature that it will, overcome, will overtake the entire world. And this is the picture that we get in Revelation of a, of a new heavens and a new earth, not localized, but completely universal. Well, bringing it to a closed church, the very first thing that we saw as we looked at this covenant made between God and Abram is that God called and Abraham obeyed. To be Abraham's children by the promise 
to be in and on the right side of God's covenant, Christ speaks and we obey. Christ speaks and we obey. We don't hear God in the way that Abram did, in, in, in him appearing to us in, in some theophany, some physical presence, some spiritual presence. But now we hear him in a way that is fullness, in a way that Abraham didn't even have, in the fullness of his word, in the fullness of the presence of his spirit, in the fullness of his body, the church. And Christ talked about this in John chapter 10. He says, I have other sheep which are not from this fold, again, anticipating his ministry going outside of Israel. I must bring them in also, and they will hear my voice, and they both those who are of Israel and those who are not of Israel, will become one flock with one shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. God's covenant with Abram was a covenant for God to be Abram's good shepherd. Follow me. I will give you what you need. This shepherd imagery is, of course, one that we see through the entirety of Scripture. Psalm 23 is shepherd imagery. David as the shepherd king is a perfect picture. The, the prophecies against the evil, wicked shepherds in Ezekiel show this in great distinction. And of course, Christ comes and in an agricultural society uses shepherd imagery over and over again. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So church, there's so much that we can say, and this is a cursory, fast look at an integral aspect of God's word. But what ought to be most clear to us is that God made a covenant with Abram, his representative seed of the woman. God chose Abram not because Abram was perfect. If you continue to read, you will see that Abram was not perfect. Abram was far from perfect, but Abram was a man who would obey God. He took that first step to leave security and go to insecurity, but the greatest security is where God tells you to be. And the covenant was, certainly, we're not denying this, it was for Israel, but it was always a covenant with Israel, for Israel, that was meant to be taken and given. And we don't talk about evangelism in the Old Testament, but that's precisely the intention of the covenant, to be a blessing for the nations so that people would see that their name was great. And in fact, one of the amazing things that we see in Judges is when, when the people come into the land, what did they say to the Israelites? Rahab says it, we heard about your God and we are afraid. And that ought to be that initial response of people who need to repent, ought to hear of God and be afraid. But then the good news ought to be right there saying you don't have to be afraid. You're only afraid if it's you and God on the wrong side of the covenantal ledger. If curses are all you get because you're not acknowledging that he is the great king. But there's great blessing that comes with saying, I deny myself. I deny what I came from. I let goods and kindred go and this mortal life also. I give it all to you. And of course, the covenant finds its fulfillment in Christ, who is the blessing to the world. All of these things, the land, the people, the blessings, the temple, the fullness of these other covenants that will be added on to this for David and to the patriarchs. They all are shadow. They all are, are template. They all are a picture 
Christ is the fullness. Christ is the substance. Christ brings all of these things into three-dimensional, tangible form that we can touch. And when we touch it, we realize that there's holes in those hands and holes in those sides because it is a blessing that is real in space and time and has substitutionary, atoning power, taking our place, paying our price, bringing this blessing to fruition in our lives and in the lives of all who would believe. Jesus Christ is the one through whom all true blessing, all true hope, all true meaning can be found. The great covenant that God makes with his people. We can trace back to Genesis chapter 12. Anticipation of promise. Anticipation of fulfillment. And so church, my call to you this morning is not just to know these things, but to know these things in your heart. Know these things as you read the word. Know these things so that we see the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That we see these blessings and these promises coming to fruition and fulfillment. We don't think, as Paul warned us not to think in Romans chapter 9, that God failed. God is good. God is faithful. We can identify, though, in our times of weakness and our times of uncertainty with those who think that things are not going well. Because the apostles thought the same thing when Jesus was arrested and when Jesus was being beaten and on trial and crucified. But the apostles were given a promise that they would be with Jesus again, that they would eat with Jesus again. And that was in the Last Supper. And so just like we have shadow and we have symbol and we have promise in Genesis 12 and the covenant, what we have here before us at Christ's table, the Lord's Supper, in bread and in wine is shadow and, and, and symbol and promise. As tangible as this cracker is, as, as much and, and as potent as the wine is as we drink it, it is still only anticipatory of a fulfillment of this promise that will come when we one day enjoy this meal with Christ in his presence. So we see the same theme, the same motif of shadow and substance, of promise and fulfillment. This is what God does for us as we are still waiting and anticipating when we will be brought to be with him. And so we come to God's word. We come to God's table. We come in his covenant being blessed. And so this is Christ's table. It's not my table. It's not the elder's table. It's his table. If you know Jesus, this is a table you've been invited to. It's a table you've invited to come to humbly, prayerfully, working out those things that he is bringing to your mind as you are sitting there holding the wine and holding the bread that you know you need to bring before him. Ways in which you have been unfaithful. Ways in which you have just not been anticipating the promise. Ways in which you have in, been coming to him in fear and not in faith. And so I ask you, as, as John comes to lead music, as he does that, come up and receive the elements. Bring them back carefully and prayerfully. And we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you covenant with your people and that this covenant is not dependent upon our obedience, but it's dependent upon your faithfulness. 
we thank you that we have the new covenant, a covenant where your word is not on tablets of stone, but it's on our heart. A covenant where we do not have a particular piece of land or a particular ethnic identity to lean on, but we have promises fulfilled in your son Christ. We thank you for the inauguration of this new covenant of grace that came on the cross that has been given graciously and faithfully to your people. And so, Lord, as we move to this time of remembering your death, but also acknowledging your present ministry as our mediator at the right hand of the Father, we also anticipate seeing with, with eyes what now we see in spirit. We know you are present with us as we partake of this meal in spirit, but we do anticipate doing so in a, a fuller way with glorified bodies in your presence. And we ask all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus.